Welcome, Wheatland family and friends. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. I am Luke LaDuc, senior pastor here at Wheatland, and I am joined weekly by our co-host, Dr. Dan Spanger, professor of history and chair of the Arts and Sciences Department at Lancaster Bible College. As a professor of history, Dan is a bright mind and engaging lecturer, and as an elder here to our Wheatland family, Dan has a warm heart for the gospel of Jesus and our life together as the body of Christ. And I am thrilled to dig more deeply into the scriptures with him each week as we tackle questions, explore connections, and generally unpack the sermon from the previous Sunday. Along the way, we'll take a few side streets, a winding road or two, but we'll never be quite so lost that you won't enjoy the scenery. Thanks for coming along. All right, welcome Wheatland family. Welcome back. Well, I always say this, Pastor Luke, actually, I'm, I'm welcoming us back. I think they've always been here. It's us. That's right. I'm sure been. they're just hovering over the website, ready to <laughs> just waiting. play. Cell phones in hand. I, There's nothing else to do on a cell phone, as I understand. That's right. Uh, then we're, the ones, we're the ones delinquent on this. I, Ver- Verizon actually called me the other day and said, when's the next one coming out? We're not, our sales are dropping. <laughs> Um, so we're we're back to to look through and this week in case the, uh, those of you listening have missed it we we did not have one last week a podcast for Genesis one one that um, that Pastor Luke had preached through so this week what we're doing is we're going to do that today um, even though two weeks late and then before the week is out we're going to then have a podcast released on the sermon that he did on Genesis chapter two so this week Pastor Luke we're going back two weeks which I know my memory is as fresh as a daisy. So yeah, well, um, we're, we're, we're going to need it then. <laughs> good, good, because you can't see the sarcasm. Because I can't say that. Right. Exactly. So, so Pastor Luke, and I, 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 I want to say, and I'll, I'll say this publicly, and I said it to you, I, I really do, and this is not just because you're my pastor and on the other end of the screen here, but I, I think it was one of the clearest presentations of this view of creation that I've heard. I think mm. that um, there's some good writing on it, and mm-hmm. I've heard some good lectures on it. I don't know that I've heard it put together as neatly and clearly as you put it together. Mm. So I'm, I'm grateful for the hard work well, you did, because I cannot think of how much it took to take all those ideas yeah. and get them into that shape. Yeah. So, well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. It's, um, it's been, I think part of it um, that makes it so important to me is knowing how profound this approach to the scriptures has been in so many other places in my mm-hmm. own theological formation um, that getting to come back to Genesis and, and to say, oh, this has a context, um, and th- there is a world in which this is, is coming. And, and so all of that was really helpful for me hmm. to grasp really deep things that I hadn't encountered hmm. um, prior to sitting with it in, the, in quite this way. So yeah, well, I'm glad to be, be helpful in that. Now, at the same time, I want to say that I, this and I think several, uh, some of us in the church, some of those of us in church, also find for as exciting as it is, it's it's difficult to swallow, right? It's a different way yeah. than than we as as modern Christians, um, post reformational people, have come to look at stories mm. like this. Mm-hmm. So so it's a challenge, I think, for some yeah. of us to sort of get the terms. And I and I I th- I don't think what you were saying is other ways of looking and reading at Genesis are not valid or important things to do. Right. But this is something to add back in as you think through 
what yeah. God is communicating. And I, and I want to say here on the outset that what can be difficult for, for people sometimes is not having background knowledge. They probably don't go home and study ancient Near Eastern creation right. myths on right. the weekend. I mean, I know we do. Yeah. That's sort yeah. of fun reading. Yeah. <laughs> Keep that in the bathroom in the boudoir. Just to, yeah, exactly. Just in case the time gets long and you need something else to do. But but it's not easy for people to to maybe yeah. know that or be aware yeah. of that. Stuff, I know? think I, I think this is a good point to bring up something that I was uh, interacting with. Uh, I, I was listening to a lecture and, and somebody was making the point. Um, so here's the tension that we do. The scriptures are an incredibly the Old and New Testaments, the scriptures, are an incredibly dynamic <laughs> revelation of God. Mm. And, and you can pick up the Bible, and you can read it, and the Holy Spirit can speak to you profoundly and mm. immediately and wonderfully. Mm. But that never takes away from the fact mm. that the scriptures are also an ancient text to be studied. Uh, those those two, you, you don't have to choose one of the other, mm. but often I think, at least I grew up, and maybe many of our, our, our people did as well, thinking and, and hearing um, that this was, you had to make a choice. You either approach the Bible as an ancient text and you studied it that way, or the way I grew up was you didn't need anything but the scriptures. And if you just read the scriptures, mm. then they'll make themselves known to you. And both of those are true at one level. Like you can read Genesis and you get the gist of it, that God created the world. Um, but there's also all of this other stuff behind it that I don't have the brain to work, work out. You know, the mm. all of the stuff that we've been looking at from scholarship that's been piled up for centuries but all of that is there and all that makes a difference too and i think it's holding those two together and being humble about about both of those places i think that to me that conversation or that discussion there is it may be one of the most important parts to come out of this genesis mm. series <clears throat> and and if there was a good time for a nerdy mic drop and a and a walk off i think that that could be it right trip over right. the cord on the way out of the yeah exactly but, but I think that to, to say that is important. I hope everyone heard that because I, I know that's been part of what you've been saying, but I, I think it was more direct there mm. that, that these two things are not at odds. And just because we engage the ancient Eastern myths, which sounds so similar to what mm. Moses is doing. And if you don't know all that doesn't change the fact that you've still met God mm. when you've read, you know, Genesis yeah. one in the NIV. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that is, I think, the reason I've been eager to do this, because I think that is a rich gift for our people. Yeah. Yeah. If they can have that, and if they can interact with some of that, you, you don't have to be a, a scholar to know that there's more going on. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, so let's, let's dig into that um, and, and how, and how you unpack that. I want to I'm going to come back to another issue that we need to raise, but I want to jump to one other point, and that is in this story. Then, if if we understand the backdrop, and and you 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 took great pains on that Sunday to look through these other myths, and I think for some people that was a bit unsettling mm. um, mm -hmm. to hear that what Moses is doing actually had some very strong parallels right. with other creation stories. So it almost sounded mm -hmm. like Moses was you know plagiarizing right. or lifting text. Right. Um, 
but there's something about what Moses is doing is so different, but you didn't see a problem right. with the fact that Moses had simply, or somehow, however, God had revealed it to Moses. And I believe that's mm-hmm. what we do believe that, that there were those parallels in existing, that, that yeah, those parallels sure. were not an accident. Right. Those parallels are there. Yeah. And yet at the same time, that doesn't challenge your view of the infallibility of scripture. Absolutely not. Yeah. I spent some time thinking about this. And of course, one of the things we talk about all the time is having wise and reliable guides. And, and I think God is so gracious to grant the church um, so many voices that are wise and reliable guides. They're obviously they're unreliable and, <laughs> and rash guides out there as well. But um, no, one of the things that I, I felt was so helpful in all of this is being able to understand the nature of, and this goes back to my opening uh, a few seconds ago or a few minutes ago uh, about what is the scriptures is we, we all confess that it is divine and human and that uh, the scriptures are a product of God's revelation through humanity. Like they, Anytime you you know this, Dan, if you start messing with um, a question like what is the Old Testament canon and how did we come to have this Old Testament, all of a sudden you realize the Old Testament did not drop down out of the sky on golden tablets for, uh, you know, in, in, in in the first century AD or the, or yeah, just after the exile, like this is a thing that has human fingerprints all over it. Yeah. Right. And to me, but it is absolutely divine. And it's that incarnational divine and human model. So anyway, that sort of being the backdrop. Um, yeah. It doesn't put us off. It, or it, it's not to say it's not we don't wrestle with that, but in the end, we we're not put off by that because if God is communicating to humans, it has to have, I mean, any, any sort of writing, any sort of language in which we hear God mm-hmm. speak to his people is all of the sudden uh, incarn- incarnated somehow. Mm-hmm. And it, it has mm-hmm. to take a form that we embrace. And so for me, when I go back to Genesis and I, I'm able to see that Moses is telling Israel who she is and who God is. And he's using a common story that they would have known very well. Hmm. Then all of a sudden, I think, of course, it it doesn't obviate the truth. It doesn't negate the truth. Hmm. It only is the most accessible way of communication that uh, was available and well-known. So, I, I thought I don't know if I said this in the sermon, but I, I was thinking about this a lot. If you if I was to tell you a story that if I were to tell you a story that you knew really, really well, you're a historian. Let's let's say it's the founding of our country. And I begin to tell you, you know, there was this uh, country that uh, was being colonized, but the tax burden got. Pretty good. But then you knew the story very well. But all of a sudden, I changed one or two key details to make a point. You would all of a sudden lock into those few details. What? Um, 
so so this new country went back across the ocean and assassinated king wait that's not what happened you know whatever right, it is right, whatever right. point you pull that actually communicates something in a in i think a more in your face obvious way than if you're just telling a whole new story so so there i i think that's all part of what's happening here is like this is an incredibly effective way an incredibly um obvious way to say the world is not what you thought it was. God is not who you thought he was. And your role here is not what you thought it was. So what are the, so what are the things do you think? And I think, um, yeah, John Soden in his book, and you referenced that book in the beginning, we misunderstood. And he, he does make that. I think it's a, it's a good point that, that God is far less interested that they have their physics right than they have their theology. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll come back to that in a minute, because I think you made a great statement about mechanics. And I want to, I want to come back to that in a second. But can we hover on that just for a moment? You, you, you do go to great pains in the sermon to say that despite all the similarities and, and whatever the reasons those similarities are there, you know, th- there's reasons historically, God's culturally speaking to a people, whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's some things that are so radically different yeah. that, that, that it, it should have. And I think if, if we go back to your metaphor about the American Revolution, if those facts change, it actually changes the whole, the whole mm. revolution changes. So right. even if the other exactly. points of the story don't change, Mm-hmm. Now it's a whole different thing. The reason for it, the causes for it, right? Drove it. It, it. I'm living in a different country the minute you say that because mm-hmm. now the whole yeah. causes that brought it on are all different. Right. So, it could you and I'm, I'm asking too much here, but could you highlight what it is? And you and you and you said you've got all of these myths that say something similar, but then you got these mm-hmm. few pieces here that are so radically different, yeah, that it yeah. does change the world you live in, right? And, and I have to point out one, and this is you, okay. you talked yeah, about. Do it. You talked about one of the gods, and I don't know if it was, I don't think it was Ra. It was, it was, um, I forget the god's name now. You mentioned, yeah. but he said he Atum, rested on maybe. the, Atum took, took a rest on the seventh day. Yeah. And then you said, what God does is so radically different because he took a rest on the seventh day. And I thought, hmm, right. Luke, you may have to explain. Yeah, I, I actually, I actually heard myself saying that and thought, <laughs> I should have, I should have erased that out of my notes. It was so strong until I got there. No, it was really strong. And then you said, I was like, wait, wait a minute. So they both took a rest. So what's so unique? So yeah. maybe that's a place to start. About yeah, what I, God I is doing differently here. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about the rest that God takes um, in that creation narrative in Genesis 1 is that day seven is the only day where you don't have morning and evening. Hmm. It is all of the sudden God rests, and that is his state going. It, it wasn't that, and there was morning and evening the seventh day, but the, but the rest that God enters hmm. at that moment is this is, is the posture that God has going forward. Mm. It is a resting and a ruling and it, and it's a perpetual um, Mm. thing. And it's, and of course I'm jumping way ahead in the story, but in Hebrew, what God is always trying to do is get his people to enter into that rest that he has assumed. Mm. And and there's a couple of levels that we could talk about it and we can talk about new creation as the point when God's people finally and fully enter into that rest. And Hebrews has a lot to say about this, but uh, so different. Uh, I should have worded it a lot different in the sermon, but the, the thing that um, for, for, for Atum who rests until it's time for night again, where he has to go back down and fight that same battle over. 
he has to go in and he has to slay the the gods of chaos and there's all sorts of stories about a spear being thrust through the throat i mean really graphic stuff uh, uh in those stories but god's rest after he creates is eternal and i i think that's just one at least in that point that is this, there is, is this an inigo montoya uh, theological principle, that word you keep saying doesn't mean what you think it means. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The rest is not the sort of rest uh, that Yahweh enters. Mm -hmm. he, he gets to rest until it's, it gets dark again, and then he has to go back and do it all over. Right, and right. I should have connected those a little bit better. In, in oh, that's okay. I just remember you saying that, and I thought, uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that was supposed yeah. to be unique to Yahweh, and now yeah, something exactly. That, yeah, the, the resting isn't is is uh, there. There's uh, yeah, it's you 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 don't know what that word actually means <laughs> to you, Atum, because well, I God is still resting, right? And I, well, and I think you actually made this point too, and I I I connected it as you're speaking, and I I I know it was in the text of the mm -hmm. sermon, but the idea is that a resting is an enjoyment, not an exhaustion. Right, right. Um, yep. He's worn out from creation, right. and now he's got to mm -hmm. rest so he can re-enter the mm -hmm. fray next. Is not what we're talking about here. No. The idea here, and, and, and I, I think you were you were getting at this, is that the, there's a theology here. Mm -hmm. Yes. That and, and this this is tricky for our people, so maybe we can unpack this a little bit. When we think of the truth of Genesis one, mm -hmm. we think of the accuracy mm -hmm. of the words. Uh, uh, right. Right. And and some of what's going on here is saying, and, and use this use this word. I hadn't heard it used this way before, but I really liked it. You you said the mechanics of creation. I'm thinking. Mm. If I'm looking at Genesis 1, I'm asking the words to give me the accuracy, right. the mechanics of what happened. And therefore, it's not true if, the, if it's not accurate. It's right. not true if the mechanics are not, didn't work that way actually, right? If exactly. God didn't actually do that. But there's this other component here that God is less interested, it seems, mm -hmm. in you knowing mechanics than you knowing something else. Right. Does that pit, does that pit truth against itself? Does that pit pit the accuracy of the text against god therefore he's trying to commute one truth, but he's not really being accurate about something else yeah so how, how do we get how do we get these two things to go together so our confidence is high in the text right at the same time we understand what he's doing with it yeah no i i think that's a really i mean that is the that is the difficulty that's what we're wrestling yeah, with yeah. At, at many lives but um i i think the place to start I think why it's difficult in Genesis 1, Dan, is because, you know, naturally, if you were teaching a course on almost nearly any other book, especially in the New Testament or something, what would be one of the first things that you would want to discover? It, it would be the context. Context, context and, and, audience. And, and, and doing that with is, Ephesians right now. Actually. Right. Okay. So you're talking about Rome. You're talking about kingdoms Ionia, you know, greek city states there yeah um the the context is really important and not only the context but the genre uh that's really important and then of course you're a historian um all <laughs> history has not always been thought of as a video transcript of a, <laughs> a, a, of a battle that took place yeah like the way 
in the Old Testament in general, um, the way that uh, numbers, let, let's say just um, not numbers, the book, but like literal numbers are used in the Old Testament. In the ancient world, numbers did not always necessarily mean the exact number of noses, if you're talking about military might. It did not always mean how many noses were actually on the battlefield for that. You know, numbers were symbolic. Um, the language of total destruction, and they killed all of these people. And then they show up later on in the story. Wait a minute. It said back here that yeah. uh, this the the Kenites or whoever were totally destroyed. How come we have them over here? Okay, so you have to go back and deal with that sort of stuff too. I think when we get to Genesis, we are so um, conditioned by uh, an approach to Genesis that has come solely to put down Darwinian yeah. evolution that it's hard for us to step out of that and get into back into a context uh, and, and, and what actually is happening here might be primarily theological. Right. Not that, not that right. what is being reported is untrue, but it's true in a different way. It's not true in the way that hmm. um, the process, the, mecha the, the mechanics of it in a sense. Yeah. Well, and, that's, and that is hard. I, I, I think you're exactly right. We struggle with this whenever we, we look at history from anything that, say, you know, um, prior to the 17th century or the 1500s, prior to the Reformation, is that history was never intended to be an accurate story. It was meant to teach a lesson, hmm. teach something. Right. Um, and so they didn't see themselves as abusing or manipulating stories. And I, right. we always wrestle with this in seminary, right, between Chronicles and Kings. You've got mm -hmm. two yeah. two ways. <laughs> But the narratives, the gospels, right? The narrative starts to change. Mm -hmm. One thing comes before, and then we try to we try to bend our brain to make sure we can get them all to say the right. same story yeah. um, in the same accurate way. Um, right. And then, so the truth, and this is this is what I was wrestling with after you delivered the sermons. What's the truth? Mm -hmm. and, and is truth and accuracy in this case the same thing? Not the same thing? Or are we? Yeah. Because of this post-Darwinian moment, and we're trying to identify ourselves as not materialistic, and Genesis is right. our best way of doing that. Right. Are we asking the, the text to, to be accurate? Is it, is, it, is it just attempting to be true, true to who God is, true to who we are as right. beings, true I to think, how the world actually works? Right. And, and I think it is true. And it is also history, hmm. but not in the way that we've always conceived of that. And yeah. I think John Walton uh, is a guy who I've been uh, found really helpful in some of this stuff, but he put it this way, the existence of matter was not the concern of the author of Genesis. And once, once you grant that, and I think that is just patently true, yeah. like the author of Genesis was not trying to say where matter came from. Right. That, he, was, he was doing something very different. What John Walton is not saying is that the universe was not called into existence by the word of God's power because it was. I mean, we have other verses in Colossians that talks about, um, you know, God uh, upholds everything by the word of his power, that nothing was created in John 1 um, that was not spoken by this, right. the, the word uh, at creation. Like all, none of that 
it's just, what are you making? And I think I use this, what are you making Genesis do mm. um, that it, that you ought not make Genesis do? And, and are we me, missing something then? Right. Yeah. Uh, say, say that again. Sorry. Are we missing something then? Cause I mean, it, it seems to me that if we keep putting mm, yes. Genesis to that task, we, yeah. we might in one sense be beating Darwin over the head and maybe that's about time, yeah. but we're must be missing something too. So do you think we're missing something when we do that? Yeah, we are. We're missing, I think, the theological world that has just been wholesale shifted for God's people. Right. And, and that's, I think, why I wanted to come back to Genesis for us, because it's not just them. We're always, miss- <laughs> we're, we're right. always missing these things, too. And, and we're always having to come back to, um, yeah, we, we are more than, the world is more than material. And I, and I think that's a really, it's interesting that sometimes um, when you go back to Genesis uh, and we want to say, you know, there, there's a way that you could read Genesis 1 and try to um, sort of defeat once and for all a materialistic Darwinian evolutionary view of the world. But you fall, you could fall into the same trap of right. materialism and, and thinking yeah. that this is actually about material, but it's about it in a different way. And, and you would miss that theological right. stuff that's that is what is at the forefront of Moses. Yeah. Well, um, you know, you know, as you say that, I think of what what sometimes we're trying to do is we're trying to find a world that doesn't allow Darwin into it, but we're not interested, all that interested in in meeting the God who is above and beyond the world it, it's almost yeah. like this new this new mythology we want to create just so that we we, we can exile darwin which i that's fine i don't i don't have a yeah. problem with doing that but, right. but missing the point that this is less about the world itself mm-hmm. than is about right. the god who creates the world and, yeah. and i and i quite frankly in my old reading of the, the sort of fundamentalist approach which i've gone through as a kid similar stories yeah. i don't know that i thought much about god in the process right what i thought was oh oh we have a world that's not pure material mm-hmm. and while that's true i think this this look at genesis says yeah but that's that's not as important like whether the world is matter and atoms and electrons that's fine so we can make electricity but the ultimate truth is i need to meet a god and know him who is not at war with his world who is mm. above and beyond it who cares mm-hmm. for like those so you mm-hmm. you use this metaphor i think you got it from walton was the idea of the home. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I quite frankly, if, if I'm interested in the mechanics of the home, the, the, the home inspector you used, then the home is my chief interest. I, I want to know how all mm. the buildings work. And that's great. That's good. Because yeah. you know, we have to live in the world. Right. But if we're, if we're telling a house sitter how to enter our home and live in it, then it's the person that I'm most interested in. Right. And I, I wonder if, if what we've done is made the world and, and, and getting it right, our chief interest, but not actually the God of the world or the mm. God over the world. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe, maybe that's not the right way to go with this, but, but, but could you unpack the, the home metaphor yeah. to show us how, how we're approaching the world differently if we accept this Genesis 1 reading? Yeah, I think I, I used that word, and I think you said it a bit before, um, the, um, a mechanistic view of yeah. the world or material, you know, but um, yeah, that idea that if you had a house that you were buying and and you had a home inspector come in, he is not going to even be concerned at all with where you might put the master bedroom or where, oh, I wonder where um, 
this family will gather and and share the stories of their day. And where do you think father and son might hang out? He, he, he's not caring about the relationships of the, the people who will live in that house. Right. His sole concern is to make sure that the furnace was properly represented in the, in the seller's disclosure, right. Right. That, that the foundation isn't. And, and in some ways that is a concern for the people who live there because he doesn't want the thing to fall in on him or, or he doesn't want uh, carbon monoxide to wipe right. them all out one night. Uh, but um, he is interested in the mechanicals. So that <laughs> when the people get there and live in the house and are relating to one another and reorder the house to be the home that they envision it, then they all of the sudden are, are not caught up with those mechanicals because they've already been to, okay, so now I'm, I'm starting to stretch it thin. But here's the point. Um, I think it's pretty clear to me uh, because of some of these wise guides that have helped me see that what Moses is doing is redoing a relationship. It, it, Moses is focusing on the relational aspect of who God is mm. to the world. He's its, it, he is its divine author by the power of his word. Mm. And what that means for creation and the people and all of that. And, and to me, that fits so nicely because all of the sudden you realize as these people are, again, it's context. I won't rehash the story, but, but yeah. So Moses focusing in on the relationships of how, how we would live in the world, how we would relate to the God who spoke it into existence and all of that does not deny that God created matter and that he fashioned the world out of nothing. That, that's all stuff we affirm from Colossians and Hebrews and other, we affirm all that. But here, the chief concern is a pastoral concern. Mm -hmm. And it is, how do we live in this space? So when you come in and you've bought the home, then all of a sudden your chief concern is, do we come in that front door like you were talking about, mm -hmm. or do we always going to primarily use the back door because there's a mud room and, and uh, I want you to drop your shoes here, kids, and then come, whatever. I won't right, keep stretching right. it. Well, I, I wonder, and I'll, and since we've, we've kicked the metaphor to death, I'll, I'll take yeah. one more swipe at it. <laughs> um, if we read the design plans of the interior design team, it doesn't mean there wasn't a carpenter crew that built the house at night. And, yeah. if, and if this is what Moses is doing is trying to introduce us to how we live in the world. Cause I think that's, yeah. I think you're right. I think I like that. Cause I think if we, and I'll go back to, I said, if we, if we get caught up in this being a story about the world itself, it's not teaching mm. us how to live in it. It's just teaching us right. how to think about the world. But I, I don't know that's God's chief interest. It seems yeah. to me he wants yeah. the Israelites to live in a certain way and he's given them all they need to know to live in that world as it is. Yeah. I, I was, um, I was listening to a lecture and I think it might've been John Walton who was talking and, and he gave another illustration that maybe is just as good, but I, I like this one. So I offered this one, but um, he's, he said, let's say I'm coming to a play and uh, I get caught in traffic and I'm, I'm 15 or 20 minutes late and there's been, one, or I get there at intermission and I finally come in and I'm sitting next to people and I ask them, uh, what's, what's happened in the play? Bring me up to speed on the play. 
And mm. the guy sitting next to me says, well, um, the author of the script is James Wilson. And he began to think about this play from an incident that he had as a kid. And uh, it took him, I think it took him seven years to actually finish this script. And uh, the first rewriting of the script uh, was a wholesale change because he realized that one character wasn't fully developed enough. And, and, and you're like, okay, um, you turn to the person on the other side, tell me about the play, catch me up to speed. Well, the, the set was designed by a very famous set designer named um, Joe Williams. And uh, you should notice that there's some very unique features. It's the first set that has a revolving, whatever. Okay, so, right. Um, right. but in that moment, <laughs> what Walton is saying is what I wanna know is what actually happens so that as I get into the second stage of this play, I know. I, I, I know. Yeah, tell me what's going. On. So it's. You, yeah, that's a good metaphor. Yeah, and I thought that was really helpful because what Moses is doing is coming to again. It's it's context. I don't even have to unpack it. He's coming to say, "Here's what's happened, and here is why. Here's what you need to know for the second half of this play, or this is what you need to know moving forward. That what you've always thought is wrong, Yahweh created." Hey. The world. That's good because I, you know, the if you do think about it, the uh, the the if we're if we're going down this road, right? The primary concern of Hebrews wandering through the desert is not some esoteric conversation about mm -hmm. the beginning of some some theory of, you know, matter creation. It's it's really wait a minute, are you telling me those aren't the gods? And you're telling me Yahweh is? How how is that possible? Gods yeah. don't work that way. That's not who gods are. Right. Gods are gods are natural forces. You even made this point about about um, Ra and and Atu maybe is that they all creep out of the natural world. They're all mm, consequences yeah. and products of it. You wind the up fact, with a form of panentheism or pantheism. Right. Or, or naturalism just in general, yeah, right? So right, that, right. Know, exactly. Everything is just a result of the world as it is. Mm -hmm. so, so if you're walking in a desert and trying to explain why you're a people in the middle of a wilderness with no home and everything else, it's Yahweh that makes that a reality. Yeah. You need to meet him. You need to understand yeah. him. Um, and and wh whether or not the mechanics of the backstage and the backdrop and the curtain are relevant to you, it certainly right. is how the second half is going to open with you right. now being called the people of God, because yeah. you're right, you were stuck in traffic or not mm -hmm. born yet, whatever the story is. Right. Well, I mean, I, I love what you what you just said about the desert, people going into the desert. In the Egyptian cosmology, Right. If a place was not ordered, the desert was a place of non-existence because there was no order brought there. It was a wasteland. Right. Um, and so I think that's a really fascinating thing mm. to think about is as far as Israel's concerned, at, at least according to an Egyptian worldview, going into the desert was going into non-existence. Mm. Mm. And um, any place that wasn't ordered and didn't have this rhythm of of flooding on the delta from the nile delta area all that stuff mm. so but yeah mm. it's fascinating yeah that that's how because because really quite frankly luke and let's let's be honest that's probably the most relevant thing for us mm. i mean i i'm i'm happy to know how it all started but I, but sure. i think what i need to come back to is the fact that nothing in this world and you use the word in, in in the first part of this you came to this concept of sovereignty and i think you touched mm -hmm. on it and maybe yeah. if you want to unpack that a little yeah, that really what you come to know in the truth of this story is that mm -hmm. there is nothing in this created world that stands up to challenges, threatens, or in any way thwarts mm. he who is called Yahweh. 
Yeah. And, and quite frankly, we're in a desert now. And I don't, I don't know that all our wonderful technology and, and science and microscopes is, as helpful mm -hmm. as they are. Mm -hmm. None of them has been able to stop the tohu bohu of the grave. Nothing's been able no. to revert and invert justice, injustices mm -hmm. ultimately. So maybe even for us, the mechanics are far less right. useful than exactly right. what the Hebrews needed. Right. Tell me why I am in a desert yeah. <laughs> and tell me why you're still in control of this whole darn thing. Yeah, God always has a way of giving us what we need, but it's not always the information that we want. Um, and, and I mean, I, I think, isn't that, isn't that a, a, a humble view of revelation? Yeah. Like if God has chosen to reveal in no uncertain terms that he is the king of the universe and, and that his, he upholds it by the word of his power, where if that's what he's chosen to reveal, we cannot turn that or, or move that into saying something that we wish he would have revealed yeah. to us yeah. it, because we're curious about it. Um, and again, uh, I don't, I don't want to take that too far, except revelation. We, God reveals and we receive, and that receiving of what God has revealed is is joyful but it also comes with a responsibility to take what's actually given yeah. and and yeah. and to take it with joy and gratitude and to rest in it and i think but but like you said to me what's so what's so clear here is that this is precisely what israel needed right. you think about their experience going into the desert um presence okay okay so if you're going to be a God to us in the desert, then you better darn well show up and be present. Okay, so I'll take you into non-existence in, in the Egyptian right. worldview, but I'll go with you. I'll be a pillar of cloud by day. I'll be a fire by night. I'll put my very presence right in the midst of the camp uh, so uh, in, in the form of a tabernacle so that you may be in non it, you may be in what you always consider to be non-existence but i'm bringing my order to it because my presence is here and um i I'll, i want to i want to i want to summarize that like in, in a way what what occurs to me and i've taught on this in my in my own classes just a little bit is that what what striking what's striking about ancient near eastern myths is that experience in the earth and the world always is the foil that's used to explain the gods mm. your experience mm -hmm. with the flood right. and the weather you just you, those just are accretions until you build up of knowledge you go oh that's what the gods and right and in the desert if you were to read all of the accretions of what you saw around you you'd never arrive at yahweh mm. but the creation story actually doesn't start with the world it starts with yahweh mm. which means that ultimately you don't look at the world to understand yahweh you look at yahweh to understand your world and right. I, I do think that that's probably where the Hebrews struggled the most mm -hmm. in the desert because they couldn't take their eyes off the fact of the disorder and the disarray and the lifelessness right. and the hopelessness. Right. And then they said, yeah. okay, if that's my reality, that's what God is. And God was always saying, if God, then that's your reality. And I, mm. I think to me, that's that part of this. And I think what you've unpacked so well mm -hmm. to me is the great power of Genesis, regardless of whether we're in the 1500 BCs or work mm -hmm. in 21st century AD, it, it, it has not changed. It's yeah. as poignant, as yeah. alive, as exciting, yes. uh, and hard as it is now as yeah. it was then. Yeah, that's beautiful.
as I talk to people at the church after the sermon, they they see your use of the word story. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a postmodern fear here, or say right. Christian fear of the postmodern, which I think is legitimate. Mm-hmm. And that is that when you invoke the word story, you you automatically shift into a rel- relativistic frame where right. everyone has their own story. This is just right. one story. Right. Um, right. Instead of using the word history, which to a modern person or pre-modern means there's one story, everything else right. is derivative. Yeah. You're using the word story, but you're not using it in that sort of relativistic way. Yeah. So what, what do you mean when you use that word? Uh, I mean the story. <laughs> that absolutely and i do think um uh, there are some levels underneath that that are really helpful i think to me it's fascinating to recognize that when god wanted to communicate to his people on the on in this time and in this place he chose to tell them the truth in the form of a story there's no denying i don't you know about the form Right, the form, a narratival form. So I, I don't think I need to tell anybody um, the power of narrative. We all as humans embrace that and get that. It's It has power for great good and it has power for great evil, <laughs> a narrative and um, all of that. But yeah, certainly when I talk about this story, I'm talking about the one thing that organizes reality, the one story under which all of reality is organized. Um, it is the form of a story, but it is it is the the true story, the true history that everything else uh, is subservient to. Right. And um, this is like I thought maybe I would just put this quote on the inside cover, and that's all I would have to do. But obviously, <laughs> that's not true. Um, you do have I do have to unpack these things because I. By the way, Terry Lynn, if this is just a little window, I always talk in half sentences. Like I'm thinking something and I'm thinking something and I'm thinking something. And then I'll no, say, that, yeah. oh, by the way, that, that, and she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, well, I'm, I have to stop and I have to go back and explain everything I've been thinking. So um, I always start a sentence with he in my head. I know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about for some reason. Right, Terry exactly. But um, I, it, it's that quotation, I'm not going to read it again, actually, but it's that quotation that I read in the first, hmm. when I was introducing this um, series in Genesis, that redemptive history, when I say story, when I talk about the story God is telling here, when I talk about the story Moses is telling here, I am talking about redemptive history as the act of God to rest, to make a world and redeem his people and live with his people and dwell with his people. Everything we know about the redemptive history story, that's the story that I'm talking about. And that story is, is your truth. And it is my truth, but only because it is the one true organizing um, under which everything in the world is gathered up somehow inscrutably um that 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 phrase from uh philip schaff that i read about all of history Mm -hmm. is subservient to this and um yeah so that's what i mean by story but i wouldn't also would not want to deny the um the power of narrative and 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 how narrative functions for humans i mean there's a sense in which what this is is uh, what we're reading in Genesis are campfire stories out around the desert. Not, yeah. not to mean they're not true, 
but they're told in this way because they're powerful in a way that um, in a way that just propositions aren't powerful or compelling. Well, you and know, that, that may go to the fact. point that we as moderns, we, we really want instruction manuals. Um, you know, we want the wiring diagrams, um, step one, step two, step three. We want a science book that if you, if you, if you just change the cover on, it could be the new science text for a, for a mm -hmm. science class. Um, when in fact, that's, that's just not how this gets communicated. Um, what was the, what's the phrase, something instructions before leaving earth? What's the better instruction that the acronym for the Bible that I've heard? I don't know if you've heard that one. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Oh yeah. It's, it's something I can't remember. It's best. Someone in this podcast knows exactly what I'm talking about, but okay. I, someone said, Oh, the Bible, that's the best instructions before leaving earth or. Oh, okay. Like that. that, that sounds like something that if we'd have thought of that as a kid, we'd have said it, we'd have liked it. Yeah, we'd have made a t-shirt just recently. Yeah. Yeah. But but to me, there's there's the problem is that I, I don't know right. that that's the relational truth right. of the story. Yeah. And, 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 I'll, and I'm, if I can summarize, Luca, what I'm hearing you say is that when you use the word story, you're talking about the mode God is using to communicate truth, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. the fact that this is one relative story compared to other relatives. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's yes. helpful because I think I can I can see how people can get yeah confused about that especially the way yeah. we use those kind of terms today That's right and i think <clears throat> i think part of that is um you know when you uh, well that, that's a whole nother discussion about language and, and and all of that and how how to use language in a time when every bit of language is hotly debated and yeah so yeah qualifications do have to be made but sometimes dying the death of a thousand qualifications <laughs> is uh well, it's necessary but sometimes it isn't right and sometimes it isn't and, and i uh, one of my professors here joe kim who teaches new testament um and theology well teaching most of theology says you know we, we've turned the bible into a set of instructions or a set of to do's and not to do's but we forget that the word itself is powerful the, mm. the word itself has an, an if usually inscrutable or untraceable power that god will use and that's not saying that the scriptures aren't true in the words they use Right. But if we just reduce it to that, we've forgotten that God actually says his power does his word does things. Mm -hmm. And therefore, and I, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning of this, just to just to reiterate it, that if you read the text, if we read the text and we don't know all this background, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is not going to work powerfully Ab through his word. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. That and was that that was that was sort of what I was trying to communicate at the start with that whole cussing a cat yeah. business. Is okay. Yeah. I didn't know what cussing a cat had to do with that. That camper was too small for my dad, but I knew that's what it meant. Right. But oh, right. there's this whole other background. Oh, now that's clever. That's funny. Okay, yeah, <laughs> right, right. right. And that goes and it goes to one other piece here, and we got a couple minutes, but I know you wanted to get this out there because there was some work you had done that. One of these wonderfully relational pieces with just this little inclusion of the concept of morning and evening that mm. that God is using some very uh, very simple detail to alter so much of the way that the Hebrews should have seen themselves and should have related to God. What what's unpacked? What can you unpack yeah. for us in just these terms, morning and evening? Yeah, well, I think it. Uh, one of the points that I was making in uh, the sermon was. Um, for, for the Egyptian worldview, more, uh, evening until morning, night until daylight again, was this sort of anxious time where even if people weren't actually anxious, the story behind it is 
that Ra has gone down into the darkness and into the chaos again and has to do it all again. And if he's victorious, we'll see his sunrise. He's got a good track record so far. (laughs) But the point is, that's still part of the worldview. So that carries into the way in which you view the darkness Mm. and the way in which night and and dark and, and sort of all the themes that flow out of what it means to be in the dark. We talk about being in the dark. We talk about right. darkness, all Afraid of that of stuff. The dark. Yeah, more. You know, we're not we're not any more sophisticated in that <laughs> regard than than our ancient counterparts. Right. But I, I was saying the way that which God uses evening and morning is in such a matter of fact sort of rhythmic way that, like, no, wait a minute, you can expect evening and morning day one, evening and morning, day two. This is part of the rhythm of life under my rule and under my authority, that there will be darkness, but I am the king of the darkness. And and what I was saying a little bit earlier now, uh, earlier in our podcast, in day seven, you get no, (laughs) there was evening and morning, day seven. It's a day of rest. It's as if on day seven, the darkness doesn't even get mentioned because mm-hmm. God has entered into his rest and he is now installed in a sense and s- sitting back as the mm-hmm. divine king over all of creation. And that has to transform, I think, this was just this pastoral point that I was hoping to spend more time with, but it was already a long sermon and so I didn't, is how does that reframe the way we sit with the darkness of non-existence? I talked about a, a few minutes ago, the wilderness being a place in the in the Egyptian right. cosmology as, as non-existence because it wasn't ordered. There was no definable rhythm to its life. It was always just bare. You couldn't, you couldn't raise, raise crops. You couldn't sustain animals out there. But I think what God is doing is is reframing his people's mindset toward the darkness in this, Mm. that yes, this will will happen. You will experience these sorts of things, but I am still the one who has entered my rest as the king over all of this. And uh, darkness has been definitively set down by our good and gracious king. Um, I think about darkness descending at the um, at the crucifixion, right, and and right. I mean this theme doesn't go away in scriptures. John, as he writes his gospel, light and dark. That at the great the great gospel of Genesis, in a sense, the mm. light and dark. What is John? What what is one of John's major themes as he writes his gospel? It's light and dark. Um, you know, so that I, I don't know. I just think there's a lot of when we inhabit our places of anxiety and fear and darkness and have no, cannot see a light or even a day, a a dawn coming, we can rest in the fact that we are not trapped in an endless cycle Hmm. of darkness. That's really important. And I, this is something that I, I try to communicate as much to my students when we look at broader histories is that it's very easy to reduce the past to ignorance and superstition as somehow we get something that they don't get. They, they yeah. don't know what to do with night. Oh, it's this terrible thing. Right. Um, actually, we have, we have the exact same places because in a world, at least for them, as chaotic as it was, there was still something superintending it all. Mm. We live in a material mm-hmm. world that really, this is just a random natural forces. And if we don't get this right, this all fails. We live in more terror probably than the ancient mm. Egyptian did. 
Because yeah. we don't live in a world. In fact, to bring God back as a superintendent for us is like a foreign concept. We really struggle to figure out how that can be. So I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know that they were any more superstitious about the dark than we're superstitious about yeah. the death of the body, meaning the death of the human being. They didn't. Yeah. That. Yeah. No, so they, they exactly were afraid of chaos right. for good reason. Chaos yeah. destroys things and, and you have a harder time of it. Right. We yeah. actually think for we actually think for some reason the death of the body is the end of the human being. So we live in far more terror. We're far more exactly. superstitious than the ancient yeah. Egyptian was in that regard. For sure. And I think that's one of the beautiful things um, about when like just realizing that what we're reading is a very intensely um, incredible work of revelation and design in the scriptures and that these people were not dolts. I, I mean, the old Testament and the new Testament together is this incredible, um, there is such, it's one unified story as the guys at the Bible project say that leads to Jesus right. and, and, the, and putting this thing together in the way that it's come to us in the form that we have it through all of the additions and redactions and all that was done to put yeah. it together. This was not done by a couple of rubes out in the desert. I mean, this is sophisticated stuff. And yeah. yet, as we said before, it is as simple to open it up and hear God speak to us by his spirit as well as, yeah. as we read it. One of the things I wanted to share about this. So, so somebody had sent me an email talking about this darkness thing, and they really actually applied it in these beautiful ways that I didn't even apply mm -hmm. it because I I'd run out of time and didn't actually, if I'm honest, didn't even think about stretching it out more and applying it more just because of time. But, uh, she, she wrote me this, um, from Eugene Peterson, the Hebrew evening morning sequence conditions us to the rhythms of grace. As we sleep, God develops his covenant. When we awake, he calls us out to participate in his creative action. Uh, we respond in faith in work, but always grace is previous and primary. We awake into a world we didn't make, into a salvation we didn't earn. And it's just, that's a, that's a, that's a whole new way of thinking about the darkness hmm. and, and the evening. So I just, yeah, I, 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 I was really helped by even some correspondence I had with folks in the congregation who took that and developed it for their own, mm. for their own um, places and spaces. Yeah. And, and then I think we're doing, and I think what this podcast is helping with as your sermons are, is, is that among the things that Genesis 1 and Genesis, actually, the entire story of Genesis can do for us is re remake us, mm. re calibrate us real yes life. because that yes and if we go stories you know as all as the the modern world would like to say they're just doing the science they're just investigating the causes this is just darwinian evolution all we're doing is mm -hmm. it's a story they've told us an entirely different story about who we are and that story has yet to provide a means of justice a mm -hmm. means of salvation mm -hmm. a means of identity yeah a means of peace yeah a means of joy but this story mm. it is true and i don't mean if as if it's not but yeah. i mean that it's true actually provides through Christ, all of those things in ways that no other story has been able to provide. And, I, and that's not just us talking. That's the no. martyrs talking. That's the saints yep. talking. It's the fathers yes. talking. It's the mothers talking. Yes. About that. Uh, that I'm, I mean, I, you, we start talking about this and I am convinced more and more with all of the trouble and with all the difficulty we have in the church, with all of the things that were, there is no story out there that I would rather. Yeah 
be compelled. There is no more compelling story than this. I was just sharing this with a neighbor of mine as, as we were, he knows I'm a pastor and, and we were talking on my porch the other day. And I said, well, you know, there is just nothing that offers real and lasting hope like this Christian story. And that's just a basic point about the gospel and redemptive history and all that. But it's the undeniable part of it that right. nothing else makes sense of the world right. in the way that this does. Right. And that's power for us. I think that's you yeah. just said at the beginning. It's power for us as we navigate. Right. And and to pull this back to your first sermon, we are going individually or corporately going through different periods of darkness. And if we mm -hmm. can see the morning and evening mm. as subjects of God's divine rule and not a mm -hmm. danger to his power, this this mm. universe for all the seemingly person impersonal influence and hurricanes and disease that all seems mm -hmm. to be wild and unpredictable and COVID mm -hmm. just becomes right. morning and evening. And yeah. Morning yeah. And, and I, and now that I think about it, I wonder if that doesn't give God's people in these times a new way to even look at the data that's around oh, us. Yeah. Uh, what is, okay. You know, I, I maybe can't make sense of the data that I'm seeing. Okay. What are the numbers here? Well, that doesn't make sense with this number here. How does that make number here? There is also another story a theological story that we're invited to believe in the middle of all this. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try and do your best to make sense of the data, right. but what if there is a theological thing being told here about who we are as humans, our vulnerability, right. our exactly. frailty, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, our sense of, uh, you know, what we really have control over and what we don't have control over. And let's be honest about right. the theological point. That's being made in our world. No, that's right? great. I, I was saying to my daughter yesterday, she's got her, she's got a sore throat coming down. It's cold going around. And yeah, she's like, right. I get this. And I was praying with her and I was praying that if God relieves the cold, it's fine. But if, if, if Genesis one and two is true, then this is another opportunity God has provided to find him in new ways. Mm -hmm. This is another, mm -hmm. this is another opportunity to see our weakness and reliance mm -hmm. another. So the, it, I don't know what, a child would find out of going through this. But if Genesis 1 and 2 is correct, then there's something to be found in here to yeah. help me understand who I am in front of God. And the issue is not the cold. And mm -hmm. the issue is not the atoms and the electrons. Mm -hmm. The issue is who is God? Mm -hmm. And if he's over this, then what does he call me to be? And yeah. where does he call me to find my peace? And how does, yeah. he, how does he call me to live? He, he, he is inviting us into a livable space. And that's yeah. what he wants us to do. Yeah. So. And that, my friend, is where sovereignty God's yeah, right. loving and gracious rule of his people is the only thing that grants you the grace and the peace and the strength to walk through places like that. Amen. Yeah. Well, again, thanks. I will, we'll come back later this week with your discussion of Genesis two. I wanted to rib you, but I, I didn't have a chance. You ribbed yourself uh, in church <laughs> because you, in Genesis one, one um, and two, you didn't even get to the spirit hovering over the waters, which is yes, exactly. I, I, I refuse to, I plead the fifth. I plead the fifth. No, no. Totally no. ignored half of, your, <laughs> half of the text. When it's only two verses, yeah, that's a little yeah. distressing. I know. But I know I, you picked that up uh, in, uh, in in this next section. So we'll pick that up later this week and we'll get that loaded up hopefully before Sunday so that we can catch in catch up. next yep. week with your, with your next sermon. So thanks, Luke. Great. I look forward to seeing how that. Thanks for your work, brother.
Friends, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. You can learn more about our church and discover additional resources on our website, wheatlandpca.org.